You are listening to the Special Needs Children podcast with Chitra Iyer. Chitra Iyer is a parent of 24-year-old Shravan Iyer who has epilepsy, cerebral palsy and autism. She is the CEO of MFA and has been helping families with life-centered planning to reach their personal financial goals. She is also a trustee of a parent support group, the Forum for Autism, which was set up almost 2 decades ago. MFA is a 17-year-old organization working in the personal finance space. They have set up a dedicated practice to help families with special needs children to plan their financial goals and invest for them. The thoughts shared here are a result of the discussion with parents, caregivers, siblings and professionals regarding the planning of a person with special needs. In this expert series podcast, Chitra Iyer is talking to Ms. Mary Barwa. a special needs parent an activist educator trainer and advocate for the rights of persons with autism and of their families her untiring work has resulted in autism being included in the disability act passed by the indian parliament in this interview mary will be sharing do's and don'ts for parents with special needs a must listen for every single family hello everyone a big warm welcome to you on this expert series of my podcast for special needs children today we have the most inspiring and uh, one of our uh, i call her a guru i call her a very very close friend i call her somebody who has motivated me and taught me so so much and i am sure she taught all of you over all the years of her teaching training and uh, how she's been after all of us this is uh, i have with me miss mary barwa hi mary hi chitra <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much for your time and agreeing to do this again with me and uh, last time we had done this in hindi this time we're going to do it in english so to everyone just to quick uh, quickly introduce you to those who don't know you Uh, Mary is a special needs parent herself. Uh, she is mother to a beautiful young adult Neeraj and she is the founder and director of three pioneering institutions in India. Uh, the first one that she set up was Action for Autism, a parent support group and from where she helped many other parent support groups to be set up all over the country. uh she also set up open door a special needs school for autism in delhi and she set up ananda uh with her entire team which is a residential home for special needs individuals uh she is an activist an educator a trainer an advocate for the rights of children and adults with autism and of course she is a huge huge uh you know advocate for all of their families her untiring work has resulted in autism being included in the disability act passed by the uh, indian parliament and today she does a lot of work with a lot of institutions involved in the government be it the national trust be it the government uh, related bodies be it anyone across the country and all of us have to just reach out to her and she knows exactly how to guide us so mary uh, today uh, is about uh, giving your guidance to a whole lot of parents as well as professionals who would tune in to just listen to you because whatever you say is something that has to be captured and i felt it is absolutely necessary for everyone to hear your thoughts okay so 
Can I please start with the interview? Okay. So, Mary, what is your view when people think that autism is caused by the parent? Uh, see, the thing is that there is uh, the fact that autism is a condition where the person does not have any uh, visible impairment, right? I mean, you can't see the disability that the person has. Uh, what happens is whatever the person is experiencing is manifested through the different ways that they behave. And hence, there is a, a natural tendency to blame people for the behaviors that are happening. So that is one of the primary, primary reasons that um, parents are blamed for autism. Uh, because, you know, you are not a good parent. That's why your child is behaving like this. You're a mother who goes to work. Hence, your child is like this. Um, you don't uh, follow the rules of, you know, our cultural rules. That's why your child is like this. So these are the things that happen. See, the other reason why it also happens is because we do still uh, have a great deal of stigma against any kind of disability, right? So when there is a stigma and there is a natural tendency for society to blame somebody for it. And it, it is the parents who get blamed and most often it is the mother who gets blamed. Even if you take the two parents, in the majority of instances, it's the mother who's getting blamed, uh, oftentimes by the, uh, the husband's family as well. Uh, and this is something that uh, has changed, but not very much, to be quite honest, because we work very closely with families from uh, a different range of backgrounds and different parts of the country. And it never ceases to surprise us how entrenched this belief is, even amongst uh, well-to-do families, educated families, all kinds of families this need to blame somebody for the child's condition. Incidentally, I have to also add here that uh, much to my dismay, I have heard um, medical professionals from some leading institutes who have actually sat at you know, meetings and said, it is the parent who are the cause of autism. So getting rid of this is continues to be a struggle, but it is something that all of us must uh, address. And one quick last point I want to make is that, you know, all studies have shown, you know, apart from the fact that it is a genetic component, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you see that uh, in the same family, you have two kids, one who has autism and one who does not have autism. Now, if the family was to blame and the mother was to blame, both of them should be having autism, right? Uh, and if neglect were to cause autism, then the kids who in our country live in, uh, you know, uh, uh, often kids who are in these orphanages in our country and who are really very, very badly taken care of, they should all be autistic. Um, and finally, one last point um, in studies uh, uh, with twins, twin studies have shown that twins have a higher chance of having autism than other siblings and uh, monozygotic twins apparently have a far higher so twins that are born of the same uh, over are have a, a possibility of uh, higher chances of both of them having autism so you can obviously see that it is nothing to do with the parent but rather genetic environmental whatever you call it 
So this is something that we will have to keep addressing. Thank you, Mary. It's very, very clear and uh, very helpful. Uh, I'm moving on to uh, what about acceptance of our children in public places? Uh, see, uh, one of the things that happens is that it is true that when you're in public places, uh, children with autism often feel uh, excluded and are often uh, there. There is often active exclusion of autistic people from public spaces, and this is something, of course, that we have to uh, address. We have to fight. We have to make sure it does not happen. Uh, but I think, uh, and and of course, in this, you know, uh, one works with and and not just us. Many organizations do this now. You know, work with people in public air, air spaces, trying to sensitize them, do awareness programs, are uh, talking to schools. You know, public spaces also include schools. I mean, that's a kind of a private space, but it's also a space that is public in the sense that there are kids from all over uh, different places coming there. So it's acceptance in um, every kind of space um, is driven by um, how society views the child, but also, more importantly, is driven by how the parent views view their own child. Because if I were in a public space and if my child you know, has externalizing uh, his anxiety or happiness or whatever. I mean, that is essentially what happens with kids with autism. The feelings and the emotions they're experiencing, they externalize it in ways that are different from the non-autistic. Uh, some will uh, go kind of all quiet and don't speak and stuff like that. Others do things that are more physically visible. Right. So when they do things like that, um, the thing is for uh, us to understand that if that behavior is not damaging anyone, harming anyone or doing anything like that or damaging property, they have every right to uh, do those. Um, or, or if the behavior is something that would be, um, you know, considered kind of gross in the sense that if I mean, I'm not talking about people playing with, you know, uh, saliva and, you know, excretions and things like that. But when people are flapping or people are jumping or uh, vocalizing under their breath, you know, quietly vocalizing or spinning or doing any of these things, what happens when families are with them? The vast majority of families get very embarrassed. And we spend all our time trying to stop them, telling them, mat karo, chup raho, aisa nahi karna hai. Now, first of all, what the kid, if the, what the kid is doing is not harming anybody, whether the kid or the family or property or anything, why does that child not have the right to flap or spin if he sure wants, right? If it's not creating any kind of a disturbance for anyone. Uh, but we, the parents, constantly tell the kid, to behave themselves. Asa shararati, mat karo, stop doing that, stay quiet. Now, when we do that, what is the message that we are giving people? We are giving people a message that there is something wrong in the child's behavior, that it is a bad behavior that needs to be stopped, right? So, uh, typically, this is something that happens in schools also. And I was speaking to um, uh, 
you know, a group that were discussing school behavior and kids with autism and stuff like that. And they were mostly parents. And uh, what happens is, yes, many schools are not very inclusive, but they're taking kids in. Now, when I go there and tell the school, oh, my child has all these behaviors and, you know, he does this, on, from the word go, I'm telling the school that my child has behaviors that I perceive as bad, right? And then when I'm dropping my kid off and he's flapping a little bit and I'm saying, Mat karo, hat karo. what is the message I'm giving the teachers? What, are, what is the message I'm giving, giving everybody? If I am so uncomfortable about my child's behavior, how do I expect the teacher to not be uncomfortable? If I am so uncomfortable about my child's behavior, why will I not expect the shopkeeper to be uncomfortable as well? How can I expect the shopkeeper to be comfortable? We get uncomfortable about our children's behavior and then we get upset when society is uncomfortable about the same behavior. You know, uh, uh, you know, Chitra, I have traveled with Neeraj pretty often, right? By air, I've brought him to Mumbai, I've taken him to Goa, yeah, yeah. workshops and stuff like that, right? And of course, he's had uh, all these kinds of, you know, flapping and all that kind of behavior, tapping and even pushing and stuff like that. And honestly, because, you know, I, some of the behavior he's doing, I know would not be looked on well, but I stay very comfortable. So people get a bit confused. Um, oh, is that okay what he's doing? Oh, but she seems all right, so it must be okay. And it is us, the parents, who have to, um, you know, be comfortable. If I don't accept my child's autism, I cannot demand acceptance from the world. If I don't accept my child the way he is, I cannot demand acceptance from the school. If I'm comfortable, that's the message I'm giving people. When I'm accepting my child the way he or she is, that's the message I'm giving the world. That, okay, what this kid does, it's different. I've never seen it. Maybe it's a bit weird, but it's okay. It's weird, but it's okay, right? You know, that kind of stuff. Of course, they will think it's weird because people don't know what it is, and that's okay, right? But they're not going to stop my child from participating because I'm comfortable around how he or she is. So we have to give that message. And until we start giving the message that whatever my child is doing is okay, uh, and I know it is hard for parents. It is hard when they start out because we've all been brought up in a very restrictive society where we are all expected to behave in a certain way. Right. We have become a little bit more relaxed, I think, now. But otherwise, kids are supposed to behave in a particular way. They're supposed to keep quiet in front of adults. They're not supposed to speak until they're spoken to. We have all of those kinds of things. But um, until and unless um, I've, I've forgotten the point I was talking about. But to get back to what I was saying, that unless we give the message to society that whatever my child does is OK, society will not be accepting. When I give the message, oh yeah, I was talking about parents being, finding it hard, yes. So parents have grown up in that kind of a society. So for them also, their kids must behave in a particular way and it takes time. So I can absolutely understand a parent who's just received a diagnosis for, the, diagnosis for their child 
having a lot of difficulty with this. That's absolutely understandable. But by the time, you know, a couple of years have passed, parents have to move on and accept that this is what my child is. And I often give an example of children with cerebral palsy, for instance. Many of them have spasticity. Many of them have different kinds of movements, right? And their parents accept it because their parents know that when my child is waving his arm around or is slurring their speech, it is not something that is within their control. This is something that they just have to do in order to be able to express themselves. But when our kids, when autistic kids do the same thing, we as parents are not accepting. So that is what has to change. Because if we do not, if we continue to be embarrassed, ashamed, you know, uh, about the way our children are, acceptance in society will never come about. Inclusion will not come about. This will have to be led by parents. Thank you so much, Mary, for that. And uh, while we keep fighting with all of the instances that are happening around us, be it the airlines or be it whatever it is, I think, uh, as you rightly said, it's, it's it's very much pretty much what the parents are doing also that uh, leads the way. Uh, you know, Chitra, if I may add something here, I recall one incident where this parent um, was not allowed to board a flight and um, somebody I know who was there uh, said that, you know, what was happening was this parent kept telling the, the son, it was a boy, sit quietly, stop misbehaving, kept on doing that even the kid was doing nothing really. He was just flapping, getting up and sitting down a few times. They kept doing that. And uh, they were not allowed to board the flight because actually other passengers stopped them. Now, that would naturally make us very angry. But think about it. If the parent is constantly giving a message to all the passengers around that this boy doesn't. And in fact, uh, what this bystander, the person who'd seen it mentioned later, is that you would think that he was going to be do something really violent and terrible. Now, if as a parent, that is how I'm behaving with my child and giving this message to the people around. So then the other passengers, they all ganged up and they said, how can this boy then come in the flight? And he wasn't allowed to take the flight. But yeah. it started because the parent, and this wasn't, it wasn't somebody who had just been diagnosed. He was in his teens. The parents were acting like uh, he's going to do something terrible, whereas what this person said is that he was, because this person knows about autism, knows me, knows my son, etc. That he was doing nothing, just flapping, vocalizing a bit, standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down. Every time he stood, the mother would say, sit down, why are you standing? So, you know, if you do that, what is the message I'm, I'm giving? So sometimes, you know, when we get very angry with how society is teaching us, I think we also need to stop and introspect about what we, what is the message we are giving? And I'm not saying society should be teaching us, treating us badly. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that we also have to, um, we also have a hand uh, in how society teaches us, to, uh, uh, treats us. Absolutely. Maybe not in the instances, but sometimes yeah. it does happen. So absolutely. So, uh, Miriam, moving on to, you know, is there a cure for autism? Is what a lot of uh, younger parents would obviously ask and also older ones and uh, parents often land up doing a lot of things 
because they are touted a lot of cures. So what guidance would you please, can you please share? What would you say? Okay. So see, what happens is that, um, you know, autism is the one condition where the search for cure is the highest. Do you know that? It's the highest in autism. And why do you think that is so? Simply because, and you know the answer, Chitra, because most of our kids do not have any external signs of a disability, right? There is nothing physiological that you can look at and say, oh, okay, you know, this is what the kid has. So therefore, parents always have this feeling right? And that, you know, that, you know, that vulnerability, parents you know, parents are vulnerable, you know. Everybody has expectation of their child and then they get the diagnosis and that diagnosis often given in a dreadful manner. Like, forget about this child. So, you know, all of that adds up to how the parents feel rather than being told that, you know, a child will be able to do a lot. Just get on and start working with him, right? Instead, they are told, and it happens even now, that so parents get very vulnerable and we know that there are enough professionals around waiting to make a quick buck that's what the world is about so if i can make money by telling parents because i own a couple of donkeys then i tell parents oh you know donkey milk is very good for your child well not many people want to buy donkey milk, but if I say donkey milk is very good for curing autism, I've got a ready market. I don't have to worry about what happens with my donkey's milk, right? So that is what happens. There are enough people selling all kinds of rubbish, like stem cell therapy and hyperbaric oxygen therapy and chelation and all kinds of rubbish, telling parents that their children will get cured of autism. The other day, there was uh, this doctor from Ames who's cited all these research studies and she said there is absolutely no proof to show that chelation or stem cell therapy or hyperbaric oxygen therapy or yoga any of these cure autism none of them cure autism right and actually yoga is often touted as a cure for autism yoga is a great lifestyle option right I practice yoga right I practiced it I think for from the time I was a kid. But I would never say that this is something that is going to make my child better or cure him, right? So the thing is that parents, you know, there was, I'll just relate, narrate a story about this particular parent um, whose son is, I think, 20 now. Uh, When the son was about seven, uh, the family had come to us. And um, the father kept talking about cure, kept talking about cure. And I kept saying, and he wanted to to try, at that time, he wanted to try stem cell therapy. It was very new at the time, right? Um, And I told him, you know what? Uh, This is not going to do anything for your child. And uh, and he wanted to try hyperbaric oxygen therapy and all that stuff. And he had tons of money. And I said, look, I know you have money. You can spend your energy and time and money doing all of this. But if you spend that energy on helping your child learn, it will be done much better. And what the father said was very interesting. He said, Mary, if you showed me a stone lying on the road and pointed to it and said, 
if anybody pointed to it and said that if you wash that stone with water and give that water to your child every day for a year and your child will become okay i will do it so you know there are parents who will and he said that you know he's one of those who just cannot accept that there won't be a cure so he's willing to try everything and i know that uh, kid now he hasn't really gone anywhere the father tried everything has done everything and see the other thing that happens is that when i'm spending several lakhs on something to fix my child it's a psychological need to see change and improvement and i will see it i will see it right so what happens is when parents spend a lot of money invest themselves emotionally in some kind of so called cure they believe they are seeing improvement and i know parents who kept saying that they are seeing improvement and there was work going on with the child with a special educator and they according to the parent it was the the hyperbaric oxygen therapy that brought about the change so the all the hard work that the special educator had put in was nothing it was a hyperbaric oxygen therapy that did it it mm-hmm. took those parents and the parent i mentioned and other parents it takes them years before they will begin to accept but by mm-hmm. then the damage is done because by then the parents have written glowing testimonials they have recorded glowing testimonials and all these you know peddlers of various therapies have got those testimonials yeah. the parents can't say give those back to me now i don't believe what you were saying by then it's too late and the number of parents who've come to us and said bekar tha paisa ka but when we say why don't you talk up, speak out about it they don't want to do it mm-hmm. because and i can understand why why waste my energy they are already so defeated after having done all of this and nothing having happened that now they don't want to waste their energy on that now and it's very difficult to accept that you made a mistake right and that you were a fool and you were fooled very few would actually very few will accept very few will accept they will not want to talk about it anymore many of them don't want to talk about it Mm. a few will talk about it and some will continue through life saying no there was improvement no there was improvement who wants to say that i was a fool and i wasted 6 lakhs how many people would be willing to say that? or to try and help everyone else who's you know doing the same mistake and to protect them and you know to we have a parent here who went all out and thought about that she informed everyone she said i was an idiot i was a fool i spent money please 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 don't do this You know, I think parents like that we should really you know applaud because the vast majority of parents don't want to do that. If they made a mistake they'll tell us but they'll stay quiet about it. Yeah. Sometimes I can understand you know they're tired now. They yeah. had so much of hopes they spend the energies doing all of this and then you know what do you do? And you know the unfortunate thing is even now say for instance you know talking about stem cell therapy which is the latest right mm. um, we've gone through chelation and uh, secretin and all that crap is done and gone parents have you know thrown away you know i don't know millions of rupees 
trying to fix their kids. So stem cell is the new cure, right? So Sri Lanka stopped stem cell from coming in. Their psychiatric community stepped in and said, we will not allow this rubbish in our country. And they threw that doctor out, the one in Mumbai who's doing all of this. Okay. But you know what? He's gone into other countries. For instance, in Zambia, there is an entire setup being run by this doctor of stem cell. And there is a total PR campaign going on. And I know that the community there are trying to stop uh, this person from peddling, but they've not been able to get the government to step in or the medical profession to step in. So now everybody in Zambia is busy getting stem cell therapy. Same people from Bombay, the same yeah. ones who've been banned. So as a community, we are so, so vulnerable and uh, there's all of these people just waiting to hawk. Yeah, oh. you know, they, they are like vultures. Yeah. Waiting for people, just waiting. Yeah, yeah. So, what what actually works? What is it that parents should actually do? What about children? What about adults? What would you advise? See, what really works is what is called. You know, people call it by different names. Special edu- you know, teaching them the way that they can learn. Right. If you teach the kid the way they can learn, that's all you have to do, which would mean understanding autism, right? See, a lot of the teaching is um, exactly the way that you teach kids with intellectual disabilities. So you just break it down and teach them, which is fine. Breaking it down and teaching is a great way of teaching anybody. But along with that, keeping in mind the very literal understanding that autistic kids have, the difficulty that they have with generalization. So, you know, all the understanding how the autistic mind works and tailoring the learning to that kind of mind is what really helps them all learn. And one of the things that we believe very strongly is providing predictability, clarity in what is going to happen so kids know how things are going to function, what they are supposed to do, what is expected of them, right? So once you do that, that is when they will learn. Because if we just teach them without doing any of these things, they will learn a little bit. But if you want them to reach their potential, then we have to do a little bit more. You know, it's, it's, I just want to give a little example. So um, yesterday we were discussing this. So there is this young man who... Um, has just gone, um, he, he, he's done his education and all that, been placed in internship somewhere. And as happens with a lot of autistic people, there is difficulty in executive functions, difficulty in organizing yourself. And the typical way to do it in most places is keep prompting, keep uh, you know telling them what to do, yell at them if they don't do it. But, you know, we have to keep in mind that they are really people who flourish if you provide them with visuals. So the first day, first couple of days of the workplace, his uh, bag was lying somewhere. His one tiffin boxes was in one place. His medicine box was lying somewhere else. When he had to collect it, he didn't know where anything was, right? Because he dropped it all over the place. Um, the people who were supporting him in his, at his as a job coach, initially the people who go in, they created a visual uh, uh, kind of a to-do list for him 
which he took in and the next day he was functioning fine. And then it made him feel so good that I managed the whole thing on my own. So the thing is that I can spend my time yelling at the child and prompting and telling him. And Chitra, I have to narrate this also. So, um, so there is this school which runs uh, BA training in autism. And uh, so the kids, the trainees have all learned how to help autistic people function better. But when they sit for their exams and they appear for their exams, the people who are the examiners are people from who are experts in intellectual disability and they're good people, experts in their field, but they don't really understand autism. So in one of the answers, the kids have, have said that um, uh, you have to provide a visual and this is what the visual can look like. Uh, their marks were cut because they were told that you have to keep reminding the student and prompting them, otherwise they won't learn. And with autistic kids, if you keep prompting them, they'll spend their life waiting for a prompt before they do anything. So till we understand autism, there has to be a good understanding of autism in order for one to be able to teach them well. But unfortunately now under RCI, um, it is believed that you don't really need anything different. It's the same as intellectual disability. So, you know, not much difference is required. So we still have a lot more to do there, but uh, yeah, we've I gone mean, back, Chitra. We've gone yeah. back. We had yeah. training that was specifically for autism. We fought for that, mm. but it has all been overturned. But I, I'm, I'm I'm so I'm so glad that uh, you know whether it's your mother-child program or it is uh, you know the structured training that you're doing for parents. Specifically, especially for mothers, what you're doing for uh, even children who are coming, what you're doing online, what you're doing offline, how you're training people to be ready for school, teaching them how to be ready for work. All of this is really, really huge, Mary. You know, the sad thing is that I can understand when people don't, you know, don't understand autism. That's okay. But when you actually have parents, Parents who go and say all this rubbish about structure is the real world structured. Why are they teaching them about all of that? I mean, and that's coming from ignorance, of course, right? Because if you're ignorant, that's the kind of thing you will say. But when parents who are influential say these things, so we are placing people in employment who have you know, a fair amount of challenges. But it is the visuals and the structure that we are giving them, which is enabling them to work independently, right? And uh, actually, people who don't don't even understand what that is all about, but have have power because they are people who other people listen to, who go and denigrate this need for, you know, predictability and. Uh, visual supports that autistic people have, it, it's just really, very really sad. So how do you get this across that this is really what they need? Our employment program, right? It's the whole thing, the training, the soft skills training, the placements and everything that we do is based on this very clear understanding of autism. When you listen to autistic people, I mean, I mentioned to you before we started about this National Trust Conclave, where there were autistic speakers, both speaking and non-speaking. 
and they talk very strongly about the need they have for the for the environment to be structured so we are actually making fun of something as parents we are making fun of something that autistic people themselves are saying that they need that we need an environment that is structured but we have parents and influential parents who go around saying kaise ho sakta hai where is the environment structured does anybody go and remove all the ramps or say that how why should we demand ramps actually to itna nahi hai bahar we don't say that we demand more ramps so that wheelchair users and people with mobility issues would be able to function but for autism we want to actually dismantle the mm, effort so, so. yes it's so detrimental for us absolutely yeah. absolutely it's really sad it's really mm. sad and i realize it comes from ignorance because these are people who don't really know much beyond their own child but believe that now you know i know it all so why do that i mean just keep quiet if you don't know keep quiet don't say things so you know it's unfortunate this has been happening quite a bit lately right so um mary um thank you for these you know answering these questions uh, primarily to guide anybody you know along their whole journey of life it's not only for parents who are newly diagnosed but also all of us who have who have much older ch- children right um what i wanted to also ask you is are there any specific other points that you think you know could you you think you would like to share with parents in terms of guiding them on what to do what not to do anything all right um i think that's a very good question uh one of course is you know what i've been talking about you know learning to accept your child except that you know what i had uh had set my hopes on is different learning to accept be non judgmental and love your child for whatever he or she is uh in addition to that a very very important one is uh you know there there are often uh, a lot of disagreement amongst parents see every couple has disagreements of all kinds but uh with autistic with a family that has an autistic kid uh in addition there are other disagreements there are disagreements on who's to blame for the way the child is who's to blame for a meltdown that the child is having uh uh why should this be done with the child who should be spending more time with the child so there are multiple things that come up and and i can understand that you know these things will happen between two people and there will be arguments but what is absolutely critical absolutely critical for the mental health of the child for the development of the child is that we do not have these arguments in front of the child you know a kid does not have to be autistic a typically developing child who uh, is um uh, uh who is uh, oh god and anyway, i'm not getting the word but in the uh, a kid in front of whom parents constantly have fights we know i mean we all know how terrible it is for a child to watch their parents having a fight right um whether it, and it has nothing to do with disability but when and and i know neurotypical kids who often tell their children uh, their parents stop fighting stop doing that because they are so distressed and anxious by what is happening now most autistic kids 
are not able to do that. A few do, right? But most are not able to do that. They do not know what is happening. All they hear is parents arguing about them, right? The argument is about them. And A, it's terrifying and anxiety provoking to have your parents fight in front of you and having an argument in front of you. B, when you seem to be the cause of the argument, the child begins to feel that, you know, I'm something terrible. This is what I've done to my parents. Even, you know, when parents say things like, ha, iska problem hai, ha, iska problem hai in front of the child, the child grows up thinking that I am a problem. And then from that further, when parents are having an argument, I'm the cause of all of this distress in the family. So there's anxiety, there is guilt, there is blame. And, you know, sometimes parents have said, Exactly. This is what I wanted to add. It's it's so sad. It's so sad that you just assume that they don't know and they can't get it at all. How they believe that they samajta nahi hai. And this is what I want to tell parents. Our autistic kids all have rich internal lives just like each one of us. Wo express nahi kar sakta hai. एक्सप्रेस नहीं करता है तो उसका मतलब नहीं कि वो एक्सपीरियंस नहीं कर रहा है और व्हेन यू हैव ऑटिज्म योर एक्सप्रेशंस आर वेरी डिफरेंट फ्रॉम अदर पीपल वी नो दैट मोस्ट ऑटिस्टिक किड्स देयर फेशियल एक्सप्रेशंस आर हैप्पी एंड सैड दे यू कैन नॉट मेक आउट फ्रॉम देयर फेशियल एक्सप्रेशंस दैट दे एंशियस दैट दे सरप्राइज दैट दे फीलिंग गिल्टी राइट मोस्ट ऑफ आवर किड्स यू डोंट सी दैट ऑन देयर फेसेस नॉट बिकॉज़ दे आर नॉट एक्सपीरियंसिंग इट they are experiencing it it's just that they are not able to externalize what they are experiencing so we have to keep in mind that our kids have all these experience all these emotions and feelings and it does not help them at all in their learning and growth and their mental health it really impacts their mental health so parents have to be very careful not to argue in front of their child just like we would do this with our regular children it's doubly important to do be aware of not doing uh, this in 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 the presence of our kids with autism uh, the other thing that i want to uh, just mention is that uh, you know uh, parents often uh, expect you know families often expect um the mother to um take care of the child i know that nowadays there are a few fathers who are also pitching in but you know that's a tiny tiny minority in the vast majority it is the mother who has to uh, be the primary caregiver for the child very often the mother is also working um and what happens is as soon as she gets back from work she also has to ensure that the husband is taken care of the in-laws are taken care of the food is cooked and on the table and stuff like that so um and and, and amazingly this is rarely a matter of argument in families you know why because uh most of the wives who are doing this they've either psyched themselves into believing this is what i have to do or they live in families where they cannot even 
protest and say, I cannot keep doing this. I'm also human. There's a limit to how much I can do. Many of them are in families where they can't even say that. And if there are any fathers listening in or, or other professionals listening in, I would tell them, please, when you're talking to families, help the fathers see this. And if there are fathers and other family members listening in, I would say, please be conscious. Because if the primary caregiver is exhausted all the time, then she cannot do a very good job of giving primary care. Whatever she's doing is not the best that she could do. And then that is not good for the child. Hmm? So I just thought of that and I wanted to add that. Very. Thank you for that. Um, Mary, what about, uh, you know, uh, any other communication related uh, intervention? Yeah. I, I was just thinking I'll say something about communication. So, you know what? Um, one of the things that happens, uh, see, a lot of our kids are non-speaking, right? Of course, nowadays, a lot more speaking kids are getting a diagnosis. Earlier, if the kids spoke, then they never got a diagnosis, right? Or if they were fluent speakers. So now fluent speakers are also getting a diagnosis. But there are a lot of non-speaking autistic children. Again, with these kids, the thing that happens is there is this belief that um, the kid does not speak, so doesn't have anything to say. And Chitra, the thing is that it is not just parents who believe that. This is what schools believe. Okay, so, um, you know, now schools, including government schools, have to take in kids with autism. And if the child is not speaking, then they don't do anything with the child. They just, you know, keep them aside and, you know, so they just make them sit in one place. And I'm going to share something that is very, very disturbing. So there are some schools, what they do is, if there is a child who um, runs around a little bit or is, you know, um, does not always listen to what the teacher says, what they would do is they will take a backpack Weight down with stones, make the child put it on, and have the child carry it around all the time so that the child is completely exhausted after the six hours or eight hours of school and just stays in their place and does nothing. So the teacher says, Okay, you know, my job is done. I wash my hands of this kid. So, so the kid woman, is yeah. And they have even convinced parents. That aisa karna chahiye. So they're doing it. So oh. this is actually child abuse happening. Abuse, yeah. This is cruelty and child abuse. And, you know, that is why parental empowerment is so important that you don't get sucked in by any rubbish that schools tell you. The parents are doing this at home also. I don't blame them because they don't know. They were told by the teacher that aisa karna chahiye. So here is a child who is weighed down with a bag of about five kilos of stones so that uh, she's so exhausted that she can't do anything much the whole day. So anyway, to come back to communication, if the child is not speaking, uh, there is often a belief that, you know, there's nothing much that the child can say. So A, we have to understand that whether the child speaks or not, not they can be taught to communicate, right? There is great understanding and we have to be 
open to understand their communication. In addition, see earlier, the communication was largely uh, signs and you know, texts. Uh, though there is, I have to say, there is so much of confusion between structured teaching and texts that it's not funny. There is so much confusion that any kind of use of cards is thought as, as communication, right? Anyway, so using texts to communicate, signs to communicate, and now there are so many um, uh, apps. Of course, earlier there was only Prolog Q2, uh, which was an expensive app to use, but now you have Avas, which is an Indian app. Uh, there is also uh, another one that I have, the name is not coming to mind, and I'll tell you in a bit. So there are apps that one can use because a lot of Jello. people. Huh? Huh, Jello is there, no, but there is another one mm. which is uh, really good, um, better than Jello. Okay. It's, a, it's as good as ours. Uh, um, it's not coming to mind right now. Oh, uh, what? Something dropped. Something dropped. Uh, I can't remember the name. Okay. Uh, so, um, so there are all these apps. And the thing is that kids nowadays are all very tech savvy. I mean, they're all using uh, mobiles and, you know, tablets and stuff like that. So it is very important um, to get kids to start using these alternate modes of communication. And uh, one gets surprised by how they start communicating once they have these, you know, and the thing to keep in mind also, in addition to teaching them, uh, helping them use alternate modes of communication, to also keep in mind that there are kids who are very uh, vocal, very articulate and stuff like that. But even they may sometimes have difficulty in expressing what they are experiencing. And that is something we have to keep in mind. So we have to be mindful in the way that we are communicating so that we are able to draw out their communication, helping them communicate better, keeping our communication very clear, direct, meaning what we say and saying what we mean to speak. So those are things that are very important as far as communication is concerned. Uh, okay, so I just want to go back again to the use of structure that I mentioned briefly. So, um, you know, oftentimes uh, parents ask that, you know, or professionals ask, why should I use structure? You know, one, of course, you know, it, it enables them to have predictability. It, uh, as a result, it helps to keep their anxiety down. When there is a predictability, it keeps the anxiety down. It helps them learn good routines. It helps them deal with change because we know transition and change can be hard for our people. So providing structure is one way of helping them learn how to deal with changes and transition. It also helps them to develop motivation. See, because for a lot of our kids, um, there is a lot of stuff that they can do, but they're not motivated to do it, right? So what structure does, it helps to develop motivation. And, you know, for us, the most important thing it does is helps to develop independence. You know, most of our kids can do a very, very great deal. And all of them can do a certain amount of stuff, right? But they are not able to function independently. You give them something to do, and then you have to be behind them, constantly prompting them. Okay, now do this. That constant prompting has to be done. Once you introduce structure, you enable them to work independently without anybody having to uh, constantly stay behind them. 
right? So, you know, even things like, so say, um, I'll give you examples from Ananda, our assisted living. So, you know, we have uh, somebody carrying, uh, from go from the workplace to the residence, uh, pick up their lunch bag and walk back and deliver it to wherever it has to be given. Nobody has to tell him what to do, where to go, etc. He just checks his schedule. He knows I'm supposed to go and pick up the lunch. He goes out, walks to the apartment. Uh, he knows where the lunch box is usually kept. He picks up the bag, comes back and delivers it. Right Now, this is a person who can do quite a bit of stuff, but had to constantly be told, now do this, now do that. When he arrives at the residence, most of them will have to be told, so when you provide structure and visuals, you promote independence. You are not constantly standing there telling them, you're weaving, you don't have to do that. Just put the visual in front and the person will do the work. So structure and visuals leads to independence and ultimately in adult life, that is what is required. That they are able to function as independently as they possibly can. And you know, the thing that happens when um, they, get, they become independent, and especially when they, as a result of their independence, they're working in the vocational, in the sense of pride that they get. And we see this also when they go out to the workplace, when they are now able to function independently, earn a living. It's, it's a natural human emotion. They feel a huge sense of pride and accomplishment. More than pride, I would say accomplishment, that I'm now able to do this. So, you know, in, in, in training for vocational, for autistic kids, based on the, I mean, you don't have to use the same kind of structure for everybody. It has to be individualized to the requirements of the person. But these are things that are very, very important for them to, you know, have a quality of life. Mary, would, like, would you like to touch a bit about, uh, you know, parents following through with academics very persistently? Right. Um, you see, following through with academics, I think that's great. I think if a child is really able to learn and is learning, they're all able to learn, but are they learning? You know, the question is, it's not that the kids can't learn, but are they learning? Because what the school is doing, is it really helping them learn? So following through with academics is great, but one has to see, is the child really learning? Because it's really sad that there are kids who, who have, you know, gone through bullying and, you know, all kinds of stuff in school and then don't know a thing. They really don't know a thing because all they've done is they've learned things by heart. Parents have made them learn things by heart and they've just brought it out on their papers and managed to get up to class five or six or so. So the first thing I would say, when we are working on academics, we ensure that the child is learning. Uh, if the child has gone into an academic thing, you know, in a school, I think it's great. And I think what it is is very important is for parents to accept that, yes, this kid has autism. And yes, therefore, has a different way of learning. And therefore, I will make sure that he's actually learning and is not just doing things by rote. Because that's not going to help the child in life later on. 
And uh, that is what often doesn't happen because, you know, we've seen it with our kids also. You know, we've supported them and stuff like that. And finally, the child has got into a school. The minute the kid gets into the school, the parents think, okay, my job is done. Now I just have to make sure he can go to school every day and is not thrown out. But that is not it. The point is he must be there and he has to learn. School is for learning. It is not just there to get the school leaving thing, right? So that is a very important thing for parents to keep in mind. And so for the parents, we know we keep telling them, come back to us. Anytime you feel your child is struggling, is not learning, is just you know learn, doing things by heart, he's going to have or she's going to have a lot of difficulty when he, he or she gets to class six or seven. So come back, take a few sessions on how to help them learn the right way. So that's one thing. Because, you know, if you get and finish your education, that's brilliant. Having said that, the other thing that I want to say is that there are kids who finish their school, are in college, and still are not toilet trained. Now, if your child is, or is not able to take a shower themselves, I mean, I cannot just focus on the education and say, I will help my child take a shower. I'll help him clean his bottom. I just want to make sure he finishes school. Because then how is that person ever going to get a job, right? So, you know, we have to keep a balance. We want to work on education. We want to support them in that. We want them to learn. But we cannot ignore the need for them to be able to take care of themselves independently. That is truly, truly, truly important, right? And that is important, particularly if we are planning to have the young person go into employment, right? So it's it's critically important because, you know, ADL skills are a critical skill in employment. I can't go to a workplace and uh, when I'm sitting with my colleagues, I'm dropping food all over the place. I'm not able to eat properly. I'm not able to wash my hands properly. When I suddenly need to go to the washroom, I don't know how to use it properly. It's not going to help. And unfortunately, that is sometimes the situation with kids who have actually completed their education. And we, we are taken aback because one presumes that if you have finished your schooling, for instance, you have a certain level of ADLs. Not so. so. And then teaching the adult all those skills gets very difficult. So it's very, very, very important to keep uh, ADLs in mind. And it is particularly critical in terms of vocational and employment. Um, yeah, I think that's largely what I wanted to say about this. So, uh, Mary, uh, what about people who, uh, you know, uh, a lot of parents talk about um, our kids flap around, they do certain things and uh, uh, they land up, you know, also wanting to do the same thing repetitively again and again. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are certain mechanisms, right, by which we can help them. What would you say? Okay. So, see, flapping and stuff like that, happen uh you know what we call stims they happen uh when uh it can be you know it's it's a way of the kid expressing himself or herself so uh flapping can happen as a way of expressing happiness expressing joy it can be a way to express anxiety it can be a way to express confusion so when things like that happen um, and we constantly tell the child to not do it, not do it, not do it. That is actually kind of blocking the child taking care of themselves. So that is something we don't want to do. If we feel the child is 
um, uh, flapping out of anxiety. We want to understand what is making the child anxious. See, instead of trying to stop the symptom of something that the child is experiencing, I want to get to the root and find out what is it that the child is experiencing and try and uh, work on that. The other thing is that sometimes children or uh, people want to do something over and over and over again. Uh, many of these are rituals that they have for self-soothing. Just like stims are for self-soothing, rituals are often uh, things for self-soothing. And uh, again, what happens is that uh, there is a constant uh, stopping that is done. The kids are stopped from doing it. What it ends up doing is just making it more and more stressful for the individual. And this is where structure can often be extremely supportive. So when we have, say, I, I mean, we've had, uh, we have and had kids like that, say, for instance, at our school, and we have them at, uh, at in our other programs as well. So what we can do is give them a child time to do that. So see, I'll give you an example, specific example that I can recall now. So there is this young person who had this constant need to repeat and say and ask these questions constantly, right? Now, obviously, when we are doing it in the class, it is disturbing the others. So what we did is we said that you can have a talk time, right? And of course, you can say these things. We never negate the need to do that, right? That person is doing that because the person has a need, maybe gets overwhelmed or whatever, and has a need to do this constant talking and questioning. And we don't say it's a bad thing to do. We say, of course, you can do that. We will have times for it. And we give. So we start off by giving multiple times on the schedule, right? So he finishes an activity, he can do this. Then we slowly reduce the number of times. Over days, we reduce the number of talk times that he has. And eventually, he had a couple of talk times in the day. And that was it. He had five minutes to sit and talk and say everything he had to say and make people repeat, do everything he wanted. And the rest of the time, he didn't do it. So we cannot stop them from doing the things that they need to do. Like, for instance, if I need to do the Wordle and do Scrabble and all that every day, I have a need to do it. You can't come and tell me, no, you can't do that. What I will do is I'll find a time to do it. So the rest of the time, I'm not focusing on that. Right? I mean, all, all, all of us listening here would want to know from you that huh. what is the actual, you know, uh, lifespan for an adult with autism and uh, an individual with autism and what are the health concerns that a caregiver should be aware of? If you could please touch on this. Okay, so uh, see, seizures is a major one with a, about a third of all autistic people uh, who've had at least one seizure in their, in their lives or some who have multiple seizures, some who have them rarely, some who have them almost every day. Um, the thing is that it is important, of course, to you know consult with the neurologist, get them on the correct medication and stuff like that. Uh, so that's a that's something that one has to do as far as seizures are concerned. One of the things that happens with seizures is that uh, you know uh, see you know sometimes parents get so stressed out that they often I know parents who don't sleep at night because they're afraid the child will have a seizure. Right. So my son had, had seizures. He hasn't had one for a few years now, but he used to have quite a lot of them. Uh, I could stay up with him or I could say that I will sleep with him. In the, first of all, I'm, I was not going to stay up with him because it's not feasible. It doesn't make sense. I have to keep my good health so I can 
look after him or, or support him in the daytime, right? Um, secondly, I would not want to sleep with my child. He's having a seizure because I feel that I'll be able to do something about it. I can't. If I'm sleeping and my child has a seizure, there's no way I'm going to know he's having a seizure, right? Because I'll be sleeping through it. So I think parents, I know it is very anxiety provoking for parents, but get the right treatment, get the medication. Some, there are kids, I mean, even at our center, we have kids who have seizures every day, right? We have to, you know, it's something that we have to be focused on, aware on, make sure that the medication is being taken. There is one thing that I would mention that there are kids who fall a lot. So we have one who falls and not just falls, he falls, he's like standing straight, he falls like a pole backwards, just like, you know, just straight off. And it has happened, I'm standing next to him and he's fallen, right? And there's nothing you can do, no matter how close you are. I'm right next to him. I had no idea it was going to happen. Suddenly, in a second, he's just fallen flat at the back and he kept splitting his head open. So what we started doing is now he wears a boxing headgear. Because, you know, the, the, uh, the other kind of thing that you have when that scooter, the motorcycle helmets, those don't have any openings. And those, you know, they, and they're hard and stuff like that. Whereas the boxing headgears are soft, they have openings for the ears, so you don't have any ear infection with moisture collecting there and stuff like that. So that is something I would advise parents whose kids keep falling. So this young man uh, who has a lot of sensory issues, we use structure to get him used to keeping a helmet on his head. You know, the magic of structure people don't realize. So he now keeps a helmet on. He has one for wearing at home and one where he goes to the workplace. Right. So that's about seizures. As far as health conditions that are concerned, the other thing I would mention is uh, dental health. A lot of autistic people have, uh, uh, you know, sensory challenges. I know my son has huge issues with a toothbrush in his mouth. He cannot let the toothbrush go near his upper gum. It's too, too painful for him. So that naturally that leads to dental uh, uh, issues. So it is very important to have regular dental checkups uh, because, you know, since, uh, you know, because you cannot keep brushing your child's teeth even when he's older. So my son brushes himself, um, but I know he doesn't do the top bit, the top gum very well. And I'm not going to do it for him. He's an adult. He has to do it himself. What I can do is ensure that he has dental checkups. By the way, at Ananda, we have a dentist coming twice a week uh, for dental checkups. No, sorry, twice a month for dental checkups. And um, it ensures that, you know, dental health, because if, den if your uh, dental health is poor, it can lead to a lot of other health issues. And oftentimes kids have what we see as behaviors is because they have you know, pain in their teeth. And dental pain is really, really, uh, uh, it's, it's one of the most yeah. And we often don't think about it. So mm. I think dental checkups is very, very important. And uh, as far as lifespan is concerned, I think autistic kids have the same lifespan as everyone else, unless if there are huge health issues, which may have an impact. But other than that, uh, there is no study to show that their uh, lifespan, I, not that I know of, I maybe, maybe I, I don't know about it, 
but to the best of my knowledge there are no uh, uh studies to show that their lifespan is not uh, compromised in any way as, yeah mm-hmm. as other people yeah this was fantastic thank you so much mary <laughs> thanks for really extending on the time and uh, every every word you spoke was really uh, so insightful and so helpful thank you again and i'm thank sure you, many bye. many many are going to benefit from this thanks a ton thank you take care bye bye you were listening to the special needs children podcast with chitra ayer the ceo of mfa and a trustee with the forum for autism if you find this podcast relevant and interesting it will be great if you leave a review share like and subscribe you can also let us know if there is any specific topic that you would like us to cover feel free to email her on chitra.ir at myfinad.com or you can call her on 98 Three three seven eight five eight nine two. That is nine eight double three seven eight five eight nine two.